morning. Just to let, let you know, I'm um, Margaret Kirk, and um, I've been uh, ministering for the last 16 years, and um, was with the York congregation for 13 of those years, and now spend some time with the Whitby congregation, um, little chapel there, with a small congregation. We're going to sing before we do anything else. And uh, we're going to sing 165, The Spirit Lives to Set Us Free. And because of Kate's amazingly wonderful talk yesterday, you've got to move around. You've just got to move around. And, oh, yeah, Sheila's just, in, and clap and generally get into the mood. So 165, The Spirit lives to set us free walk, walk in the light it binds us all in unity now if you can't read and walk at the same time just just walk to the chorus bit because that just repeats itself so that's easy thanks Sheila
to ask Sarah to light our chalice candle. Thank you, Sarah. here we light the chalice and see. The flame of truth burns bright, fed by the vision of each of us, rising from the heart of us all. Let its light shine out as our lives shine out, brightening the dark places of the world, bringing wholeness and peace. Words of Joy Crofts. And now, this morning, we're in for something rather special. Very, very special, actually. Um, because the intergenerational group have been doing some very, very creative things. And they're going to share some of this with us. So, Kate, Lauren, you're going to tell us a bit about it? <coughs> Give me some 
words are strictly copyright, but if you see me afterwards, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> I think we might be taking you up on that, Lindy. That was just wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Give a little friendship, get a little back. Wow. I have a story this morning to do with tea, drinking tea. This is one of my favourite occupations, actually. Um, in the morning, I have a ritual of great significance, <laughs> unparalleled significance. I have to have a cup of tea, and I have to have it in my hand, I have my hands around it like that, and I drink uh, in bed. So I'm always in bed when I'm doing this. And... Um, it just is right, and it sort of sets me up for the day. So it is my ritual. It just brings me together before the day goes all haywire. And this is a story about a tea ceremony. And it's based in Japan, because tea, tea ceremonies are rather special events in Japan. It's based in Japan. And um, it's in a place where they lived... A Zen teacher, and his name is Nanin. And one day, a university professor comes to visit him, and Nanin says, "Come in, come in, come in, come in, and uh, have some tea." And he's very welcoming, and he led the professor into the tea room, and they sat on either side of a bare table. Again, as is the custom, sitting across from each other. And the old master sat in silence, perfectly relaxed, perfectly at ease. Just occasionally he would smile warmly at his guest, and then occasionally he would just gaze out and look at the beautiful gardens through the window. But his visitor became increasingly edgy. He didn't find the silence easy. He squirmed, he started tapping a bit mindlessly on the table, he fixed his eyes on the door, waiting for the tea to come in, and uh, it didn't arrive quickly. And, uh, and he couldn't bear this silence, he just couldn't bear it, it just became just intolerable for him. Uh, and the, he, so he thought, well, I, I, I know all about Buddhism, I, and I gave a wonderful lecture, and uh, I'll just, I'll just you know, hold forth. Uh, and so he did, and, and he began talking about the thing he knew a lot about. He'd just given this lecture at the university, so he knew there'd be no problem. So he just started talking. He cleared his throat loudly, and um, he began this lengthy speech. And Nanny and the old master made an excellent audience. He sat quietly, he listened, he nodded sagely, he appeared to be full of curiosity. Each point his guest made, yes, he was his head, appearing to agree, and so the professor was encouraged to continue, became more voluble, more excited about what he felt was very important. After all, lecturing was his business. And after about half an hour, still no tea had arrived, um, and he thought it was a bit rude to comment on this. Um, and uh, so he just carried on talking, just talking. And then at last, an attendant arrived with a very elegant tray with a ceremonial teapot and two cups. And Nanin took the cups and put 
placed one in front of his guest and one in front of himself. And then he began to pour the hot liquid into the cup. And he poured. And he continued to pour. And he continued to pour. And the tea went over the brim and into the saucer and onto the table. And his guests were still talking. <laughs> and then suddenly he felt the hot tea in his lap and he came to an abrupt stop. What are you doing? What are you doing? He spluttered. Can't you see there's no more room in this cup? And Nanin looked at his visitor very earnestly. Just like this cup, sir, you are also too full. You have too many ideas and opinions to learn. First, empty your own cup. And then, together, we can learn something useful about Buddhism. And that is the story of a very special teaser. And now you're going off to do more creative things. And uh, have a, a great morning down in the yurt. Is, is it the yurt you're going to? You will be. <laughs> and um, we're not singing the young people out. Just, just, just. empty your own cup and then together we can learn something about Buddhism and it reminds me very much of the the lines that we attribute to um, uh, uh, Dag Hammarskjöld who's that lovely opening um, each morning I um, we, each morning we must hold out the chalice of our being to receive to carry and to give back. Each morning we must hold out the chalice of our being to receive, to carry, and give back. Well, sake, this is the last theme talk. My goodness, what a responsibility at the end of this wonderful week. Sacred living. I, I was thinking as I was preparing this um, that mo often moments of spiritual clarity uh, arise when we are alone. Uh, all the religious mystics uh, draw attention to that. It's much more easy to, um, to identify these moments as sacred because they're often intensely personal uh, and there's nothing to get in the way of the experience, no distraction. And often a moment of spiritual clarity follows after turmoil, a time when life is changing, uh, and in the midst of pain and confusion, something can break through, clarity can break through, and all the fragmented bits and pieces of ourselves uh, seem to, to, to come together, a pattern emerges, and we begin to understand more clearly. And I think there are lots of examples of these special moments in different religious traditions, and Buddha as a young man was uh, overprotected by his parents, um, from ugliness and human misery and then once he came face to face with it the direction of his life changed forever and he 
as we know, the, the story tells us, he sat under the tree and discovered enlightenment. Moses, um, in the Jewish tradition, um, he uh, witnessed forced labor. Um, he saw um, an Egyptian killing a Hebrew slave, and he had a death sentence hanging over him. Uh, and, and he escaped to a more remote part of Egypt. He gets married, looks after his father-in-law's sheep, and as he's shepherding sheep, he has this moment, this, this very sort of like an epiphany moment. Um, the burning bush, the, the burning ground, God calls him, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Jesus spends time in the wilderness alone. So sacred moments will always arise as intensely personal, powerful moments, as deeply individual spiritual experiences. None of us would want to deny that. But then there is this other thing. Jesus refers to um, when two or three are gathered together, in my name, there I will be also. And it might not have the intensity of a personal moment of spiritual clarity, but it is also holy ground. Space opens up for grace to enter. Danny spoke um, about it on Wednesday morning. Making space for the other. Making space for God. Richard Gilbert, the UU minister, says, familiar words, we meet on holy ground, for that place is holy where lives touch, love moves, hope stirs. And how do, how do we begin to describe the spiritual quality of meeting, meeting each other in this way? How does this shape our experience of being together in beloved community? It may not be an intensely personal moment when we're called to action, but we know it has the taste and the touch of sacred living. And we know this. We know, we know it so deeply, because what have we been doing this week? That's exactly what we have been doing. We have been experiencing um, this vibrantly in, in every way that place is holy where lives touch love moves hope stirs Bill in his first talk on Monday said God is calling us to live spiritually and isn't that just what we have been doing all this wonderful and I just want to think for a moment of all the holy encounters that you have had this week. Think of the people whose eyes and, and uh, touch uh, has affirmed you. Think of all those who served you and how you have been both a giver and a receiver. And let's just be grateful. Let's really be so grateful for this amazing week, this summer school tradition and let's not forget uh, 
all those people who, who've made it the way it is, the panel, of course, the work workshop leaders, the people that have served us in the dining room, everyone that's created this place for us, and your Minister of the Week, uh, and all the work that she has, has done. Let's just be aware of that. Again, Bill reminded us, using the words of Meister Eckhart, if the only prayer you say in your whole life is thank you, it is enough. So thank you, all of you. Thank you. And I just want us now to sing again because, the, 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 do you remember the hymn that we sang on, it seems such a long time ago, Saturday, no, Sunday morning in the service, in the chapel, when our heart is in a holy place. So we, let's just sing that together. When our heart is in a holy place. And I'm not sure what number is it, Sheila? 208. Church. 
And she wrote some words which express her vision of the beloved community. I just want to, to read these words. She said, some people ask me why I go to my little church each Sunday. It is very difficult to put into words the deepest experiences of one's life. And when I stumble and say that I want to worship, to pray and give thanks, to receive inspiration and a power for living from day to day, those words do not convey anything of what I feel. My neighbours tell me they can do all this without attending a church. It is not for me to say that they can't. And yet while I believe that solitary communion with God in the quietness of a wood or garden is truly significant, my greatest joy is worshipping with those who feel the same way as I do about important things. Those with whom I worship, with whom I pray, sing hymns and listen to eternal truths. Those with whom I share the silences in a service become part of the mystical union with God and myself. I go from church with fresh insight, new vision and renewed endeavour. Now, all of that I can say yes to, and I think probably you can too. But I'd like to suggest to you that the real challenge for the beloved community the real challenge for sacred living, the real creative stuff for Unitarians, is when we come together and recognize that we do not always agree about important things. When we recognize that we are the most diverse, prickly, difficult, quirky, awkward folk that ever come together in any group you can imagine. We are very different. Meeting of minds. <laughs> I recently took a service um, where for some reason or other, I don't know why I, I chose to do this, I introduced the Tibetan Buddhist idea of reincarnation. And um, it was at the very, very least just an offshoot of what was the main theme of the service. <laughs> and if I'm honest, I, I, I think I probably introduced it. I wanted to impress somebody in the congregation you know, who kept talking about reincarnation. <coughs> I thought, well, you know, okay, I'm going to just tell her a little bit about what I think. So I sort of, you know, sort of got it, found a place for it in the service. And I, and, I, and I was actually hoping to have some response from her. Well, I did. <laughs> Whilst other members of this small congregation sat slightly bemused, she made it very apparent that the idea I was introducing bore no resemblance whatsoever to what she understood by reincarnation. So. She was quite clear. She was quite clear. <laughs> Very happy to express it. And there was somebody in the congregation that day who'd come from York to visit, um, and first time she'd been, and she was just, after the service, she was just chuckling away and said to me afterwards, this could never happen anywhere but in a Unitarian church. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. <laughs> 
If you've joined a Unitarian community and believed that at last you've discovered a place where people think the same way as you, beware! (laughs) There should be a health and safety warning. At one point, um, when as a minister I was feeling particularly challenged by this diversity of viewpoint, a colleague sent me a passage that I really feel is worth quoting in full. And you may have come across it. It's from something called In the Simple Morning Light by Margaret Road. And I have read and reread this many times. As much as Unitarians stress freedom of religion and praise diversity of thought, I suspect it takes most of us a long time discovering our differences and even longer before we can celebrate them with enthusiasm. Our initial excitement about our congregations often comes from the feeling that we have at last found people who think like us. When we discover that might not be entirely the case, we often focus on what we have in common and try to avoid exploring differences that will divide us. Because we fear that expressing our diversity will lead to division. And we often retreat into silence or express our views so forcefully that others retreat into silence. Rather than engaging in the genuine dialogue that will express our views so forcefully that others retreat into silence. Rather than engaging in the genuine dialogue that will enrich us all. And she goes on to say, when I have been able to explore with another person just where we differ, when we have both had the trust and the time to tell each other what we have seen and how we have come to understand it, I have found the experience to be energizing and clarifying. I am more sure what is the me and what is the not me. And I have found myself in some way bound to the person who is seeking with me, the person who had seemed to be my opponent has suddenly become my partner. Over the years, I have come to believe that the meeting of minds in loving argument, as well as in common purpose, is both creative and holy. And holy. Now, I think there's a lot of very interesting stuff there. Congregations. And um, I just want to pause for a minute. And we don't really want to acknowledge. But it is a reality for us in our congregations. And um, I just want you to think, does this ring true for you? Does this ring true in some way for you? And and have you experienced finding a community? Maybe it doesn't in any way at all. Maybe you're at that stage when you're so excited about what you've discovered that actually this aspect of it has just not yet impacted on you. Maybe it never will. But I, I just like, maybe you're at that stage when you're so excited about what you've discovered that actually this 
aspect of it has just not yet impacted on you. Maybe it never will. But I, I'd just like you um, just to have a bit of a stretch mentally and, and physically um, and, and just um, have a chat with, perhaps in, in twos, with, in threes, however it's easy to do, and just have a little bit of a conversation about whether that rings true in any way for you. And perhaps how it does. Okay? Just, just amongst yourselves. Just for two or three minutes. <laughs> some more interesting conversations to continue when we um, <laughs> when we gather um, if, if, if you're able to gather together for the, uh, the, the conversations on on the theme talk um, later today I want you to think for a moment about that claim that the meeting of minds in loving Argument as well um, as in common purpose is both creative and holy. And I'm going to suggest to you that is what we Unitarians do. And it might sound a bit grandiose, but I'd like to propose that that is our theological priority. As we turn to each other in community, in the human messiness of differences, something profound opens up, if we allow it to. Martin Buber, the Jewish theologian, always an inspiration to me, says, There is no single God's word which can be clearly known and advocated. But the words delivered are clarified for us in our human situation of being turned to one another. I'm just going to say that again. There is no single God's word which can be clearly known and advocated. But the words delivered are clarified for us in our human situation of being turned Huber says the basic movement of this life of dialogue is the turning towards each other. And we are, as you know, we are avowedly concerned with receiving and honouring, holding each other's spiritual perspective with love, go back in your mind to the holding of the chalice of our being each morning. And when I say avowedly, I'm thinking about all our literature. So much of our literature, which speaks of this business of bringing uh, into our community differences and being enriched by them. It's that togetherness of difference that makes us distinctive, not just as a byproduct of who we are, but because our ecclesial community, our religious togetherness, is grounded on that principle. And our differences are not dissolved. We reach understanding through and across differences. 
And when that happens, a transformation takes place. Not a change of viewpoint, not a yielding of a closely held position, but a new way of seeing and understanding, a new perspective. We find holy ground somewhere in the spaces that open up between us. Danny talked about this, this meeting, this making space for God. That is a theological position. And it is in that human situation of being turned to one another that we discover the sacred. And if we are in dialogue with each other, we don't rush to fill the space with our ideas, our opinions, our beliefs. We don't do what that visiting professor did when he was invited to partake in the tea ceremony. We hold the space. We turn to each other and we hold the space. And then it becomes a sacramental act. We listen to the truth that emerges in the spaces between us. First empty your own cup. And then together we can learn something useful about Buddhism. We've discovered right relationship. The space where God enters. The Indian mystic Krishnamurti, writing about freedom, said, you know when you look at a sunset or a lovely face or a beautiful leaf or a flower, when you actually see it, that there is space between you and that flower and that beauty and that loveliness or between you and the misery and the squalor, you see. There is space. You have not created it. It is there. But we refuse to look, this is, he's still speaking, but we refuse to look through that space simply, quietly, persistently. Through that space we project our opinions, our ideas, our conclusions, our formulas, and therefore there is no space. Space for difference. <coughs> space in which to see things from a different perspective. There has been, over the last few decades, a lot of talking about dialogue. A lot of talking. <laughs> oh, gosh, do you, I'm sure you go to interfaith. You have been, or all of you, to interfaith. And what, what goes on there? You know, what goes on? And I, I, I'm sure there are some wonderful ones, but my experience has been pretty abysmal. So, kind of one person just suddenly sitting there and saying, well, this is what we think, and this is what we think. There's no space for anything to, to happen there, you know, there's no space for any transformation. And I'm sure it's, I've just had bad experiences. You know, I'm sure I have had bad experiences, and, and there are places where something is happening that is much more meaningful. It's not surprising that there is um, a lot of discussion about um, interfaith because the relationship of Christianity to other religions has been pushed into the foreground. 
we see a plurality of religious and cultural traditions. You know, major religion can close its eyes to its neighbours. We as Unitarians are a bit oblivious to this as a challenge. Because in one respect, we feel it's no challenge at all to us. Our, our theological position is predicated on personal freedom. Therefore, we accept pluralism. Within our Unitarian community, there's open acceptance and coexistence of different theological positions. That's the theory, at any rate. We're, we're at ease with the theory. But are we really with the practice? When differences open up between us, are we always at ease with the practice? The ground we share, the space we hold, this cherished sacred ground, this place where we move in freedom, this space our ancestors fought for with their lives has to be tended with great care. We must never take it for granted. Reaching out to each other across differences, being ready for transformation, is scary and it's challenging. It is not cool, rational, cerebral stuff. You feel it in the gut. You feel it in the gut. You feel it physically. When you get into that situation where someone you thought thought like you doesn't think like you at all, and here we are in a Unitarian community where everyone should be surely thinking the same way, and you really feel it. it it's a physical thing. It hits you. Your body, Kate, so grateful to Kate, for introducing this, your body lets you know long before your head does that something is amiss here and you are uncomfortable. And that's the time when you run away, or you might run away. No, I thought it was wonderful. I thought this is a wonderful place. Everybody was, you know, thought like me, think everyone's open, and, but it's not like that. And, and, and that's when you run away. So we need faith. And we need commitment. We need faith and commitment in these many acts of turning to each other again and again and again. And I just leave you. We're going to sing. Um, we're going to sing something. Um, we're going to sing. We laugh. We cry. Um, but I just want to leave you with, with that, that thought. We turn to each other again and again and again. And we are going to sing in the purple book, 193. And again, I think we may like to get up and move around when we sing this you feel so inclined.
we believe in life and in the strength of love and we have found a need to be together. We have our hearts to give, we have our thoughts to receive and we believe that sharing is an answer. <coughs> and now haven't we shared? I'm going to finish with some Closing words from this book, this wonderful book. Oh, are we enjoying this book? Wonderful. And um, you, you want, you can, they're on right at the end, um, 250, just a benediction. <coughs> Let us go in peace. Say it together. Let us go in peace. To live together in harmony. To see beauty everywhere. To know wonder in each passing moment. And to walk gently with our God.